Welcome to episode two of my mini plant-based Kickstarter podcast series. Today, I'm speaking with nutritionist Steph Lowe. Steph has an undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science and a postgraduate degree in human nutrition. She is the author of Low Carb Healthy Fat Nutrition and The Real Food Athlete. She is also the founder of LCHF Reset, LCHF Endurance, and The Natural Nutritionist, which is a thriving clinic based in Melbourne, Australia, that I'm also a part of. She is also the host of the Health, Happiness, and Humankind podcast. Steph is a wealth of knowledge on the subjects of digestive health and becoming fat adapted, and I was thrilled that I could pick her brains on your behalf. In listening to this interview, you will learn about what LCHF, or lower carb, healthy fat nutrition is. We break down the myths associated with a traditional LCHF plate and clarified what needs to be on there. Steph and I also discuss the importance of digestive health. She explains the link between the gut and mental health, as well as the influence that gluten can have on digestive health. You may identify with some of the signs of a diet that's too high in carbohydrates and the signs of less than ideal digestive health. I truly hope you enjoy this episode and learning from Steph Lowe. Hi, Steph. Thank you so much for joining me for this chat. I'm so excited to talk with you. Yeah, so good to be here. Mm. So you and I have had many, many discussions and today I wanted to focus the chat um, looking at what is lower carbohydrate, healthy fat nutrition, and then sort of maybe weave on into digestive health and how that dietary choice can support digestive health, specifically for those who choose to eat more of a plant-based diet and those that are transitioning to more of a plant-based diet. But I guess before we go into that, maybe give, give myself and the audience a little bit of background on you and what's got you to this point. Yeah, for sure. So I run The Natural Nutritionist, of which you're a very important part. Mm -hmm. And I started TNN in 2011 when I really realized that there was so many gaps and myths in that nutrition space, lots of confusion, um, and we had a long way to go with real food education and looking at um, different styles of nutrition, of which LCHF is just one. Mm. And, um, you know, I was on a mission to really teach people that health begins with what you put on your plate. Mm. And it's been a fascinating journey, you know, where so far along with the real food movement five or six years ago, um, some amazing, you know, research that has since happened. But it's, it's slow, you know, there's still lots of myths in the nutrition space. And I guess I'm still really inspired to help people simplify nutrition but also understand that it's it's more than that, like looking at your microbiome and understanding what we would consider to be bio-individuality, so how it's unique to you, is so important. And that's, I'm sure, what we'll be able to impart on our listeners today. Yeah. And that's one of the, the, like the exciting things, and I don't know if you feel the same way, the exciting thing about being in the nutrition space is that, you know, information is always new information is always being made available to us, new testing techniques, new research. You know, when you and I went to university and studied nutrition and exercise science, we both did, the microbiome wasn't something that we talked about at all. You know, gut health wasn't something that we really understood as being something that influenced uh, our energy levels, our nutrient levels, our mood and the way we think. It just wasn't even part of the curriculum back then. So it's cool. It's great that we yeah, get to talk really about cool. it now. Mm. Yeah, and it's probably still not part of the curriculum in many um, courses, unfortunately, because that, of course, is a process that takes time. We understand that. 
but it's why platforms like yours are so incredible because we end up being a little bit in front of the research because we know how long clinical trials take. We know that it can take, you know, 17 years on average for a new concept to be actually applied to say, you know, food pyramids or government guidelines or whatever it might be. So if we're not up to date with the research, then everyone's behind. So, you know, it's up to us as nutritionists to to continue to educate ourselves and stay up to date with that um, emerging research. Yeah, yeah. Now, what we also didn't learn about at university, and this is going back a long time probably, I don't know if it's quite been 17 years, um, it probably almost (laughs) has, almost has. Um, But, you know, going back to university, lower carbohydrate, healthy fat, I don't think that was an acronym back then. You know, we knew about the Atkins and we learned about Atkins, which I guess is an extreme version of lower carbohydrate, healthy fats. So what what, um, took you in the direction of learning about lower carbohydrate, healthy fat, dipping your toe in the water and maybe start with explaining what that acronym even means to you? Yeah, for sure. So LCHF is a pretty common household term these days and we have our own specific definition of that at the Natural Nutritionist. So specifically it's lower carbohydrate, Mm. healthy fat. And I think that's really important to distinguish from um, approaches like Atkins, although I think Atkins was well ahead of his time and he's really paved the way to say move away from the food pyramid. Mm. There are a lot of problems with Um, what people's perception of that sort of a template looks like. You know, I always have that visual image of that Time magazine piece where it was this massive piece of steak with a butter, a piece of butter on top. And that's not what we're eating when we look at LCHF. Most people are quite pleasantly surprised to find out that it is predominantly plant-based. So, Mm. you know, when you and I talk about building our plate and what we educate our clients and our wider audience to do, is to always start with that plant-based approach. And that's very different to Atkins, which, um, you know, would be very protein and and very saturated um, fat heavy, which has been part of the problem with all the myths surrounding saturated fat and that very um, now debunked but very... um, unwilling to die myth which is that saturated fat heart, heart health myth which yeah yeah, yeah very yeah. much so but um what, what my journey is interesting because what feels like a past life now I was a triathlete and um I started um training for long course and I was thrown into this world where there was sports gels and Gatorades and heaps of sugar and it didn't make sense to me as someone who, who's been interested in nutrition and in the health and wellness world for decades at this point in time didn't make sense to me that would be we'd be eating so well during the day and then doing almost the exact opposite when we were training and racing. Mm-hmm. So that took me on a deep dive going back at the research of Jeff Volek and Steve Finney and then more recently we have pioneers like Grant Schofield and Karen Zinn and um, their team in New Zealand and, and there's been obviously so many more in that time. Mm-hmm. But that took me on a journey to understand, all right, well, there is another way um, how do we not rely on gels and Gatorade and similar products in um, endurance sport, which of course is to become fat adapted and, and have that metabolic efficiency. Then of course, now we're able to apply that to people that don't have endurance goals because we know that what we're trying to do is create great health and longevity. And um, most of that comes down to minimizing inflammation 
So of course, that's going to be avoiding sugar and refined carbs, isn't yeah. it? So we can yeah. do that day to day. And there's certainly strategies for athletes as well. Yeah. And there's a flow on there as well, I think, or a, like a similarity in like flowing into the plant-based community and that you've got these elite athletes who really need the absolute best from their body. So they are trying to learn about how they can eat really well during the day, or unfortunately, sometimes they're doing the opposite and they think, well, I'm so healthy and active that I can just eat whatever I want. Um, you know, calories don't matter type mindset. Uh, and if they are eating really well during the day, then processed foods to either help them in any carbohydrate loading strategies they might be engaging in or any sports fueling strategies they might be using. And then you've got this plant-based community. And unless they're being, unless they're educating themselves or being educated in the right way, they can be very tempted to also eat the processed foods, the convenient foods that may be labeled as plant-based. Um, so woo, the check, check, checking that box and ticking that goal but you know on the flip side they're full of trans fats or high amounts of salt and sugar more importantly and processed foods like so very moving very far away from that real food notion that inspired you and inspires me every single day as well yeah well you taught me the term statutarian I think about that all a lot a long a lot a lot of the time actually because um you know it can be that your goal is plant-based But with that real boom that we've had in that space and products and, you know, Netflix documentaries and whatever Mm. it is, um, there's obviously more myths now to be uncovered about how we do that properly. And you do a great job of that. Mm. (laughs) Thank you. So, yeah, Statutarian, I hadn't even even popped in my mind until now, but for for people who are wondering, like, what on earth does a Statutarian mean? You know, it's that, that, that classic or cliche sort of deciding to remove animal products from the plate and so replacing those animal products with the starch, the bulk as a filler, so the potato, the sweet potato, the quinoa, the rice, which are all whole food options, or unfortunately sometimes there are more processed options like the pasta or the cereals or the breads or the muesli bars or um, the the other convenience foods. So that's the starchitarian, which is really almost the opposite that we're looking for in order to support that fat-burning metabolism, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's the irony, of course. Um, You know, like you said, in the plant-based community, there there is obviously that interest, but um, a lot of people, if they're making that choice ethically, they often um, can easily do it at the expense of their health, which is obviously what we're trying to encourage people not to do. Yeah. You can have this beautiful ethical goal, but your health can still be the priority. And that means, you know, it's largely plant-based and that, that you, you have to be a little bit more um educated and prepared and and therefore not default to having a really high carbohydrate diet. Mm, Yeah, because that's what it is, default in some cases or even a fear of not being full if those starches Mm. aren't on the plate, if that makes sense, you know, like I'm taking away my piece of steak, I couldn't possibly replace that with more non-starchy veg and some really protein-rich seeds and nuts mm. or even even legumes. It's it's an interesting, it's like default or fear of not being full. Yeah, and I also think it's quite historical really. Like I often think about um, if we're not, we're not talking about progressive restaurants right now because obviously there, there are many that exist in these days, but if you still go to a restaurant um, that's more conventional, there might be a gnocchi that's vegetarian or vegan. There might be a pasta um, and, you know, 
risottos and things like that come to mind as well. So they're quite easy to do um, plant-based, but naturally then, you know, be left with only really a carbohydrate option. Now we're seeing a really beautiful evolution of things, like just like the gluten-free has changed so much over the last 10 years and there's many other examples of that. So I'm confident that would will continue. But, um, yeah, like you need to know how to eat properly, which is obviously what you're really um, inspired to teach people to do because, yeah, you can get full off starch, but it's very problematic for blood sugar control and the rest that follows over a a long period of time. Yeah. So if somebody is that starchitarian and they are eating lots of that starch, how might they know it? You know, what might they be, what might they feel if they're replacing all of that old protein source with starch on the plate? Yeah, well, the biggest thing is the blood sugar roller coaster. You know, most people understand this when they hear it explained in a certain way because carbohydrates give you immediate energy, but they're short lived. So what goes up must come down and we then experience a crash. And now that's really individual because it depends on your carbohydrate tolerance and it certainly depends on whether you'd opted for whole food carbs or not and how much mm. sugar was in the picture. But it's essentially this roller coaster where all day you're bound by your appetite, you have peaks and troughs in your energy levels. And then when we hit that danger zone of what we call 3.30-itis, which is that you know three to four o'clock window where you've crashed again and you want caffeine, sugar, a nap under your desk or all of the above to survive. Yeah. And you, know, you and I have done many seminars together where we ask the audience, hands up who experiences 3.30-itis and we see hands popping up everywhere yeah. and everyone yeah. having a good chuckle because it's a bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing, but it's a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And then when we are fat adapted, when we balance our carbs with our plant-based um, focus, with our non-starchy veggies, the right proteins, the right fats, etc., then we have this stable blood sugar. And for most people, that is life-changing and very night and day to what their normal day-to-day experience is. Yeah, the light bulbs go off when people realise <laughs> that, oh, my God, 3.30-itis is a reflection of my diet and my food choices, yeah. not that I'm fatigued or bored, which maybe it could be a little bit of that, but the blood sugar roller coaster, like that is just leading you straight into that afternoon dip. And it it can lead to like a lack of sustainability in dietary choices, especially in the plant-based community, because they think, well, I'm starving and I'm, I don't have like consistent energy. So this is not working for me. And for me, that's upsetting because mm-hmm. if anybody makes a dietary choice, it should be a sustainable one, not a flash in the pan, whether it's a weight loss diet or a muscle building gut diet or going on a plant-based diet, like there needs to be sustainability and longevity in what you do. Your body doesn't want like these radical shifts and changes constantly. Yeah, and going back to that example where if someone's starting plant-based for ethical reasons, which, you know, I really admire, but six months in or one year in, they're feeling completely exhausted or they've put on weight or their inflammatory markers are trending in the wrong direction or anything, like they're not going to keep going. There's going to be a point where they think I just can't survive even though every part of me believes in the plant-based movement. And that can be really disappointing because... Um, to me, that's like someone trying LCHF and eating lots of meat and butter and just blaming LCHF as being bad when you haven't mm. actually done it properly. Yeah, <laughs> like it's yeah, really yeah. about that, that real understanding of what we're trying to achieve and getting some support to do yeah. that. 
Yeah. It's like reading the label on the box, but then not looking at the instructions, like lower mm-hmm. carbohydrate, you know, higher fat. Great. I'm going to go eat all the meat and eat all the fat, but they're not actually looking at the guidelines. Like step mm-hmm. one, fill your plate with non-starchy vegetables. Mm-hmm. Step two, yeah. add some protein. <laughs> step three, add some quality fats. So yeah, look at the instructions. Mm-hmm. But um, you mentioned before, like it's not sort of till six or 12 months into the, the changes that people might notice that they're gaining weight or losing appetite control. All their inflammatory markers are increasing, which I just find ironic because so many people are sold the benefits of a plant-based diet because it'll improve their inflammatory markers, but sometimes it can go the wrong way, you know, because they're not reading the instructions on the packet. Uh, but digestive health, you know, commonly people will say, oh, in the first four to eight weeks, my bowels were moving more frequently, things felt really good, but things can start to unravel. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, that peak of regular bowel motions can start to unravel and then people start to experience the bloating, the digestive upset, the sluggish, like the sluggish digestion. So, Maybe go back to the start there and, you know, from your perspective and your experience, why is LCHF such a such an important decision for the sake of digestive health? Yeah, there's so many reasons. I hope I can cover them all. <laughs> oh, but I mean, big when, one. Yeah. <laughs> Break it down <laughs> as much as you need to. Yeah. If we put the carnivore community aside, everyone else in the world can agree that fibre is the best um, ingredient for a healthy biome you know so if we look at what our version of lchf is it's predominantly plant-based and on a good day we're having six cups of vegetables per day like we don't often meet someone who's already doing that and that can also feel like a deep dive so you know we always remember that rome wasn't built in a day but that's just to give you a bit of an understanding as to you know how much we're focusing on fiber when we're talking about lchf and that we're going to be feeding our biome so that is king because we need to be feeding our biome the right food because the fiber-loving microbes are anti-inflammatory. They produce our beautiful short-chain fatty acids, of which butyrate is the most celebrated. But you know, that's fuel for our gut cells. That's um, helping us produce serotonin, which is mood and motility. And then, of course, we're going back to feeding those microbes to create good diversity in the gut. So we know that diversity means you've got lots of different microbes and high numbers and it's like a rainforest that's flourishing. And that's so important because it's directly related to health. You know, if we see low diversity, we nearly always see low health and then the opposite is also true. We see good to great diversity associated with good to great health. And what's interesting on the flip side of that, if someone's eating too much protein and or too much saturated fat, especially when they're not eating enough fiber, it's very pro-inflammatory. We see metabolites like um, trimethylamine and we see hexolipopolysaccharide and things that we just don't want to be having our microbes producing. Mm-hmm. And that starts with what we're feeding them. Yeah. So we have to be focusing on fiber. And of course, plants are going to be the best option there. Yes, you get fiber from nut seeds and whole grains, but um, we want to be getting most of our nutrients from plants. Yeah. And so that six cups is, you know, a really great goal to work towards. Yeah. And I think even just going back to what you, like you said, right that right at the start, six cups. You know, for some people that may be debunking some massive preconceptions around what an LCHF diet looks like because 
my God, six cups of vegetables, wouldn't you have to count the carbohydrates Mm. in there? But if the majority of that is fiber, which it is in those non-starchy vegetables and a lot of other plant-based foods, then you know, we don't need to get into the nitty gritty of, um, of the carbohydrates there to, you know, to some degree we do, we need to look at overall carbohydrate in the day to maintain that lower carbohydrate template. But if it's, if it's plants, you know, non-starchy vegetables, whole food plants, then number one, you're not going to very easily exceed that overall carbohydrate goal. And so then, yeah, you can fit all of these beautiful non-starchy veggies into the plate and not worry about counting them, restricting them, which is just the, I think the worst misconception about lower carbohydrate, healthy fat approach to nutrition. Yeah. It's funny. People think that like, um, carrots really high carb and they think that colors are out. And again, like there's so many myths that we try and unpack, which I think is important because not that we expect anyone to become, you know, nutritionists or really, you know, tracking anything too closely, but that level of awareness is important because otherwise you see people eat a low diversity, right? Cause they mm. stick to their safe, super keto type foods and then we're not eating the rainbow and you know I always chuckle because this is such a cliche nutritionist statement but eating the rainbow is important for lots of reasons the color is polyphenols is how we're going to feed different microbes and lots of microbes that we see when we do testing so this is stool testing that um, genetically sequence the micro sequences the microbiome Um, we see so many missing microbes because they're not being fed their fuel. And this is technology and amazing science that we have access to. But a lot of it comes down to some fairly basic concepts like colour on your plate, diversity, you know, resistant starch, and like things that um, are relatively easy to implement and then have such a huge benefit, like exceptional bang for your buck when we look at microbiome health yeah yeah and doesn't just like the natural trail of thought I think for the for the broader community or at least the health conscious community is gut health right so I better go and buy my probiotics and I'm going to sip on kombucha and I'll buy my fermented vegetables and it's like that's that's like bullet gate approach like it's you know Mm. that's not the foundation of taking care of your digestive health or or your microbiome health, especially because we know not, not all of those beautiful microbes can, they can't get be fed by a, by a pill or a, a probiotic supplement. Um, you know, Acomantia is a beautiful example, which I think may be on the card soon, but currently like we can't feed or promote growth of that health promoting bacteria through a probiotic capsule. We need to eat the, the polyphenol containing foods, the blueberries, for example, to, to help support that bacteria grow. So yeah, diversity in the diet. Like, don't disregard that as being foundation, right? Yeah, I think people, we're in a magic pill society. We're very quick fix orientated, and that's partly the weight loss industry to blame, but it's also a function of, you know, 2020 and beyond. So I think there's that. So we're thinking, oh, yeah, I'll go and buy my kimchi, like you said, or I'll go and buy my probiotic capsule when we've forgotten the foundation. So you and I are always focusing on the foundations. I always say you don't build a house from the roof. So yeah, what are those foundations? And almost everyone's missing some. And um, that's where we want to go back and run a fine tooth comb through everything to make sure we are layering our health. Yeah, yeah. Like some people have said to me, um, is plant-based Kickstarter a detox? 
Mm. It's like, well, no, I'm not labeling it a detox, but yeah, all of the food is gluten-free and obviously it's dairy-free because it's plant-based and there's no processed foods in there and no trans fatty acids in there. So yeah, in an essence, it is a bit of a detox for the body, but not a real exactly not that not a detoxy buy out of a packet but Mm. just really taking taking away some of those toxins that your your body really would prefer not to deal with especially gluten in this in the context of digestive and gut microbiome health Mm. yeah it's tricky the d words like detox and diet have their own kind of connotations to them and I'm really careful not to use those words because I think people could um, be quite um, like put off by them but Mm. also you know make some assumptions that just aren't what we're trying to achieve and that's why we talk about you know nutrition or an approach or something that you're trying to do sustainable rather than it being like let me do this quick detox Mm. and then go back to all my old habits right what would be the point really yeah so it's not a quick fix yeah Um, Go on. Yeah. I was going to say it just, it just, um, it, I guess, perpetuates that black or white or that pill for an ill type mentality. Like oh, I had a big month over new, over Christmas and new Year's, So I'll do a detox and it doesn't instill that really important notion of hold on a second. Like my body's always trying to work in my favor. So maybe I should, you know, make daily or mealtime decisions that support my body in doing that rather than like having to play catch up every 30 days or three months or six months when people might do their detoxes. Yeah. And that's why I like the term reset because you're not sort of yeah, I don't think you're really trying to detox, but some people do like to let their hair down over Christmas and New Year's. So naturally it's like, right, I need to start feeling better again in Jan or what have you. But, um, you know, I think it's then how can I learn or what can I learn to then continue into the year rather than it being like I'm, I've got this finite time frame and then I'm going to drop the ball again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And some people do need, I guess, a line in the sand is that that go that go time yeah it's usually that first or second week in January when people are feeling pretty sluggish <laughs> yeah yeah and like they want to make a change yeah. but um and I'm so done with that like just on that theme of like getting to getting to early January and feeling sluggish I think you can probably agree with me like I'm so done with the, like sort of Christmas New Year's and then feeling like just an inflamed mess mm. at the start of the year I would much prefer to you know, maybe make a few sort of less than standard choices over Christmas, New Year, but certainly not let it unravel to like days or weeks of just challenging the body. Yeah, everyone's so different in their health journey, but I guess you and I have both gotten to the point where we're just not interested in that food anymore. Like I legitimately can honestly say I just don't want to eat that food. So, you know, even if there is, you know, more food or platters or whatever it might be, I'm always making pretty good choices. Like I don't eat vegetable oils. I don't start eating gluten. I, I don't eat refined sugar. Like, and that's just my choice. But everyone's so different and I'm totally cool with that. Eat to their own. But I think there is a way to survive that silly season without like losing your mind and then yeah, yeah. having so much work, like 10 kilos to deal with by the time, okay. you know, it's Australia Day or something like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the subject of gluten, because it's something that I don't eat either. And, um, you know, some people would say like, oh, where's the fun in your diet? And from my point of view, you know, the, the benefit of not having that in my diet far outweighs the downside. You know, for me, it was the realisation that, 
I was like constipated for like my late teens and early twenties and removing gluten created some freedom there, <laughs> literally. Um, so all of my recipes that I develop are, uh, are gluten-free and in a one-on-one setting, you know, it's not necessarily always you have to be gluten-free, but what people will realise is that when they do transition to whole and real foods, that there doesn't tend to be a lot of gluten there yeah. naturally. Mm. But uh, what are your thoughts on gluten specifically for digestive health and nutrient availability yeah. as well? And I'll start with nutrient availability because this is where people really start to understand how we've eaten in Western cultures. Because mm. if you were to remove gluten from someone's diet, there are, is going to be no nutrient deficiency, no gaps, no concern around um, the quality, like the nutrient quality. Mm. What it actually does is it makes room for higher quality foods because we're not filling up on empty starches. We've got more room on our plate for the beautiful non-starchy veggies, the right proteins, the healthy fats, and then, you know, the whole food carbs are very individual. But my point is, is that you're not going to get a deficiency. And if then we look at how empty they are, how processed they are, you know, they've got a really high degree of human interference, which means they've got a low degree of nutrient density because we want the opposite, right? We want to choose food that has the lowest degree of human interference, which will have the highest nutrient density. And that's pretty clear. So I think that's most people understand that um most people also have a a relationship with bread they find hard to break so that's a little more complicated but what we know about gluten um and this is in some people so not everyone that what it can do is be quite inflammatory in the gut um it certainly can interfere with the tight junctions in the gut wall and we can get increased permeability in the gut which some people know as leaky gut but in the literature it's called it's called increased intestinal permeability and that's a whole cascade of issues where it's very inflammatory we have a lot of those more um defined irritable bowel type syndromes you know yours might be constipation someone else might be diarrhea might be bloating Um, but the issue that we know is the gut is connected to the brain via the vagus nerve so issues that we have in the gut can occur systemically and that's why we're looking at the gut as or the gut brain access Mm -hmm. as our new treatment direction for mental health disorders like anxiety and depression which is just incredible Mm -hmm. because Inflammation in the gut can cross the blood-brain barrier and then inflammation in the brain can cause a whole host of issues. So, you know, if someone's having any of those symptoms or systemic issues like skin, um, there's no harm in just cutting out gluten for even two weeks or 30 days. Your body communicates loud and clear. We just don't listen or we don't know how. I think it's important to you know, notice firstly, if it's potentially in your diet in high amounts, if you've got digestive symptoms, skin, which is our largest organ, often reflects that internal environment, mental health challenges, you know, it's, it's worthwhile trialing gluten-free. And if, you know, you don't notice any difference, knock yourself out and keep eating it. But I'm pretty sure you'll feel better because you'll be making room on your plate for more quality whole foods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, we're always looking at, you know, do no harm. And like you said, right from the get go, there is, there is no, there is, there's no nutrient that you're going to miss out on. Mm -hmm. If you remove tip top bread and pastas and cereals, you know, you can get your fiber and your protein from other sources Mm -hmm. that don't contain gluten, that, that wheat protein. So do it for, for 30 days, see how you feel when you start to reintroduce that stuff. But 
also looking at that increased intestinal permeability, you know, there are some amino acids and, and of course there are other nutrients like zinc that's really important for helping to seal those tight, tight gap junctions and help to regain um, sort of normal level of intestinal permeability so you can absorb and, absorb and retain nutrients. But on a plant-based diet, that, that glutamine, that amino acid that we love for helping to seal those tight gap junctions is not as, not as easy to source naturally mm. through, through food. And, and so I'm sure you would agree with me. Well, then we've got to look at the other side of the spectrum, which is before looking at what the treatment needs to be, what's the preventative to help maintain those tight gap junctions. Yeah. And so we would always start with a nutrition approach. And that's mm. where it's confusing because there are lots of people who are vocal online who will make statements like, unless you have celiac disease, it's dangerous to cut out gluten. And I frankly and respectfully disagree. Um, but, you know, I just think it's about what's right for us. And it's not a whole food. It's not, the, it's not even the same genetic material to the gluten that our great-grandparents ate when they ate their bread 50 years ago. There's been so much human intervention, mm. so much, you know, um, exactly intervention to make it um, resistant to bugs and resistant to Roundup and climate um, savvy and so on and so forth. That It's just a Frankenstein food for a lot of people and we can't tolerate it because it's genetically different to our ancestral line. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, good thing, luckily, all of the recipes in plant-based Kickstarter mm. are gluten-free. And so I think people will get a real like eye-opener to, you know, wow, I can have my brekkie without uh, without cereal or without toast there, or I can have my pasta without it having to be a gluten-containing pasta or with bread on the side. And what we've sort of even not even come to yet, there's so much to talk about, mm. but what we've not even come to yet is that with the appetite control and the satiety that comes from the lower carbohydrate approach to nutrition is that often it helps to get rid of that sort of psychological drive to eat the bread. You know, you said before people have a love affair with bread and it's really hard to get to get rid of it. But if you're really satisfied and you're not on that blood sugar roller coaster, then the thought of consuming bread isn't even as intense as it may have been, you know, in weeks or days past. I agree. And it's just about having other options. You know, there in Australia, what we have for breakfast is cereal and toast. Like we've all pretty much grown up like that. So you, know, you and I always have that conversation where we're talking to someone about breakfast alternatives that contain veggies and it's almost like we've grown a second head. Like that's a foreign <laughs> concept to a lot of people. But, you know, in time it becomes the default once you learn that there is another way, once you notice that you can be full, that you do have blood sugar control, that you have craving control and, and so on and so forth. Like it's a beautiful light bulb to have experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think people sort of like they're relatively um, comfortable with the idea of a green smoothie, you know, yes. something there with greens, but yeah, we can take the vegetables further than that at breakfast time. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think there are any other considerations from a, um, a microbiome or gut health uh, point of view specifically for the plant-based community? Well, it is the resistant starch that I touched on earlier because, you know, we're not demonizing carbohydrates. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, of course, refined carbs 
and sugars um, aren't the best choice. But I love foods like sweet potato and you've mentioned, you know, quinoa and rice and things like that. They, they can suit um, people quite well. It's all about how much and when. But resistant starch is what we want to consider to include to feed our biomes. The best example of that is sweet potato. When it's being cooked and allowed to cool, the structure of the carbohydrate carbohydrate rather, changes to what is called a resistant starch. So resistant to digestion in the upper GI tract um, is then delivered to the lower part, that, that major microbiome that we talk about, to feed our bugs. So if you've got sweet potato rolling through the week as leftovers, you're doing that. And a lot of people are already, and it's nice to know that there's a beautiful health benefit to that. Mm-hmm. So feeding our biome, creating diversity, and then also not being afraid of whole food carbs because we definitely see that in the keto world, which goes mm. back to what I was saying about people think carrots are high carb and they cut them out and they start eating just greens. You know, I think sweet potato is a beautiful, um, more starchy carbohydrate that has some incredible microbiome benefits. benefits. Yeah, as well as blood sugar controlling benefits. Like if you do go down that resistant starch route and and cook and then cool that that sweet potato, you're going to get much better blood sugar control from that because of the the resistant starch that's that's you know subsequently being formed. Um, it's a lot less, I guess, carbohydrate that your body is absorbing, and therefore a lot less impact on blood sugar. Yeah, you lose about a quarter of the carbs, I think. So it it is going to really improve that blood sugar control, especially with what you're pairing it with, which is why you look for that nutrient-dense place. Yeah, yeah. Now, probably one of the other things that often comes up in the plant-based community around digestive health is that there's a real inability to tolerate, digest, break down, whatever you want to call it, a lot of the protein-containing foods. So things like, you know, chickpeas, lentils, um, even tofu or tempeh, these can provide issues for some people. But I guess you and I both would know that if those are presenting real challenges and, um, you know, they're being prepared in the right way, like they're being soaked or they're being cooked for a period of time or they're being eaten in the right portions, then they really should be tolerated, right? Yeah, otherwise they're highlighting that something's going on under the hood, which is that whole microbiome approach that might then um, direct you to do some further investigation there. But almost always when someone says to me, oh, I made this bean dish and I was so bloated, I'm like, oh, did you happen to buy canned beans and just chuck them in the the dish? Mm. And the answer is always yes. Whereas I don't eat a heap of that food, but I, I, I certainly try to include them across the week and I'll almost always have them slow cooked. Yeah. Um, and I don't really buy canned food at all these days. So I'll buy them raw, soak them overnight, rinse them, and then cook them for eight hours. It's very unlikely you're going to have a problem like that. But if you do, it's just an, it's a nice gentle nudge to take a deeper dive and um, look at what might be causing that rather than pulling those foods out lifelong. Yeah, exactly. Whether it's a microbiome or microbial imbalance further down the the colon, the intestine, or whether it's something higher up in the small intestine, mm. you know, usually there's something there that's going to create that inability to to break it down. But it's really important to uncover that because otherwise you're missing out on these not only protein sources but fiber and prebiotic sources in the diet as well. They come up in every microbiome report that we do because mm-hmm. they're an incredible source of prebiotics. And, um, you know, I obviously work with a lot of people that have probably removed them back from their paleo days or if they've come from that more dogmatic keto approach, 
And it's often one of the things that I'm adding back in. But yeah, like you said, portions. So in small amounts is important because you don't have time off from the gym and go back in and start lifting the same weight that you lifted when you left. I'd hope not anyway. So you can't then go back into eating like huge volumes of lentils if you've had months or years off. So you start gradual, but the preparation is critical because, you know, as you always say, you're going to actually break down any potentially problematic components like phytates or lectins um, and allow your body to essentially consume a, a pre-digested food, which, mm. which is lovely. It takes a lot of the work from the gut away. Yeah, yeah. So super important to digestive health from being able to tolerate these really nutrient-dense plant-based foods to being able to support the sort of the absorption and retention of nutrients within the plant-based foods, which is important because as you and I always say, you are what you eat, you are what you digest mm. and absorb. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just so grateful that you've been open to having this conversation to help educate the community on the importance of digestive health for really optimising a plant-based diet. Oh, I'm just thrilled. I think it's such an important message, what you're doing with Plant-Based Kickstarter. I know you're going to help so many people. Um, and, and, you know, find a way to be sustainable but really focus on their microbiome, which is obviously the end goal for health and longevity. Yeah, precisely. So if people aren't already following you and want to know more about you, where can they go and find you? Yeah, so my online home is The Natural Nutritionist, so that's .com.au, so you can come and hang out there and subscribe to the newsletter. So we send out, you know, free recipes, articles, um, podcasts every week. I mostly hang out on Instagram, which is The Natural Nutritionist. So come and say hi. Um, I'd love to hear how you're going and stay in touch with you guys. Yeah, and um, what you didn't say is that you have an amazing podcast, the Health, Happiness and Humankind <laughs> podcast, and if the discussion on like gut health has piqued anyone's interest today, then make sure you head over and search for that podcast because awesome. there'll be some yeah good tips on digestive health. Thanks so much, Steph. Thank you, Ellie. It was so great to be here.